ask your pardon for my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Yahweh said to Abraham, leave your country, your kindred, and your father's house for a country which I will show you. God places a very definite challenge before Abraham, later to be Abraham, to leave these places that are very close to his heart. And there's a progressive specification of the command. Each time it's something closer to his heart, your country, your kindred, your father's house. Our Lord asks him for a piece of his heart, something very close to him. And he asks him to set out towards an undisclosed destination, a country that I will show you. So God demands from Abraham, our father in faith, <clears throat> a great trust and a great faith. But with that, he also opens incredible horizons. In the Eucharistic prayer number one, we refer to Abraham as our father in faith. Somebody that we can look to, to learn about this virtue. And this week, in Lent, the Church places before us this particular passage of scripture. And I shall make you a great nation. So on the one hand there are demands, but on the other hand there are great promises. I shall bless you and make your name famous. You are to be a blessing. I heard recently that in this year, 1921, it's the fifth centennial of the conversion of Saint Ignatius. So in 1521, Saint Ignatius lay wounded after a battle in Pamplona in Spain, and that was the moment of his conversion when he had a spiritual experience. God entered into his life. But at that moment, Saint Ignatius couldn't have had any idea of how God was going to use his correspondence over five centuries and beyond to be the backbone of the church for so many centuries, to educate so many people, to build up so many saints and martyrs, St. Francis Xavier. In 1970, Pope St. John Paul canonized the 40 English saints, many of whom were martyrs and many of them Jesuits, very heroic witness to the faith and maintaining the faith during times of incredible persecution. This week in the United Kingdom there is a, an exhibition of those relics of those martyrs. It's interesting how five centuries later we're looking back to these historical realities, all of which came from the faith of Saint Ignatius and how God used his correspondence. Well, in the same way, God wants to use our correspondence. 
with no idea how God has planned to use our faith and our living out the practice of our faith to build up a whole new civilization of love that St. John Paul talks about. We've come to change the world with our faith. And so in our prayer this morning, we can say to our Lord, well, Lord, increase my faith. Increase my faith, my hope, my charity. Help me to correspond in the way that you want me to correspond. Because I know you have great things that are dependent on my correspondence. Every time that we receive the sacraments, we get an increase of faith, of hope, and of charity. The theological, supernatural virtues come to us with the grace of God that comes through the sacraments. And so every time we go to confession and receive Holy Communion, well, it's good to have a habitual desire <clears throat> that you actualize of telling our Lord, my Lord, I want this communion or this confession to bring me all those graces that I need to grow in these key virtues. And that's one of the reasons why the church recommends frequent confession, frequent reception of Holy Communion, so that we grow in these virtues, we grow in grace, we grow in faith, and ultimately we grow in holiness. I shall bless those who bless you and shall curse those who curse you. And all clans on earth will bless themselves by you. So Abraham went as Yahweh told him. Abraham corresponds to the commands that God gives him, or the invitations. And on many occasions we're going to find this is his response. And Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haram. <clears throat> so he wasn't a young man by any standards. And so God may come to us at any stage of our life and ask us for great things. And before that, and that whole preparation period, where God may be building us up, <clears throat> building us up to that particular moment when he wants to make a great demand on our life. It happened some time later that God put Abraham, Abraham to the test. Abraham, Abraham, he called. Here I am, he replied. And so sometimes God places challenges in front of us, <coughs> challenges he wants us to rise to, little demands, or little difficulties, or little problems. And he, he hopes that we will turn to him with faith, to prayer, or leave things in his hands, or learn how to trust. He wants that in our own lives, and he wants us to cultivate that spirit around us. A few years ago, I was introducing, I was interviewing a 100-year-old Loretta sister who's been here for 73 years, died recently. And I asked her this, when she followed her vocation, they had other, two other religious vocations in her family, three of them. How did her parents react to her vocation and to her coming here to Kenya? She said, well, my mother didn't mind because she was a saint. How important it is that mothers and fathers of families are saints. 
because God may want to do great things with their children. We have to try and live like saints with great faith to foster that spirit of faith around us. For that seedbed of vocations which the domestic church has to be, which fathers and mothers of families are called to, to build with their own virtue. And so in the same way that God called to Abraham, he calls to each one of us in our daily work, in our ups and downs, in this week and that week, in the things that happen to us in the course of our life. He calls to us and he hopes <clears throat> that our response will be like that of Abraham. Here I am. Eche ego. And in the Old Testament there are other phrases that say, here I am because you have called me. Here I am ready for anything. The sky's the limit. Here is your servant. Ready to do whatever you ask of me. Ready to accompany your son to Calvary to stand with him there like Our Lady. This period of Lent is a time for us to grow particularly in these virtues, time of great spiritual bonanza. That's why the Church places these passages before us for our contemplation. And God said, take your son, your only son, your beloved Isaac. And so God invites him now to the major sacrifice that he's going to ask of him in his life. And again, there's a progressive delineation of the command or specification. Each time something closer to his heart. Take your son, your only son, your beloved Isaac. <clears throat> Don't be surprised if God asks you for not just a piece of your heart, but your whole heart. Because that's what he did with Abraham. Sometimes God may ask mothers and fathers of families to make the sacrifice of Abraham. And go to the land of Moriah, where you are to offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will point out to you. It's still a relatively undisclosed destination, but progressive specification of all the details. Now beforehand, God had told him that I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And now the very means that God had given him to make this father of a great nation, he seems to want to take away. And so Abraham has every right, you could say, to like to question God. Why? Why now? Why me? Why this? How come? The mystery. There's a point in the Mass where we say the mystery of faith. Our faith is a mystery. Our faith is made up of mysteries. Thanks be to God. If all the mysteries of our faith fitted into our little mind, well, they wouldn't be great mysteries. God is a mystery. Love is a mystery. We come face to face with mysteries all the time. Our God invites us to grow in faith and trust in him. <clears throat> to leave things in his hands. Sometimes God wants time to pass before he will allow this fruit to come or that fruit to come. He wants us to wait, to be patient. Early next morning, Abraham saddled his donkey and took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. 
He chopped wood for the burnt offering and started on his journey to the place which God had indicated to him. So little by little he fulfills all the little details that are necessary to carry out what God has asked of him. Still not fully understanding. Still leaving everything in God's hands. But going forward little by little along this pilgrimage of faith. And so also each day of our life and fulfilling our daily duties in our work, in family life, in sickness and in health, in the ups and downs, in taking care of the little things of every day, putting this thing in its place, finishing this other job, having a to-do list, looking at our priorities. We're going forward in faith. Contributing to the great enterprise that God has called us to be involved in, the building up of the church, or the fostering of this particular apostolic activity, or the formation of this other soul. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his servants, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I are going over there. We shall worship and then come back to you. So he leads the servants there because somehow this is something personal that involves him and his son. Stay here with the donkey. We shall worship and then come back to you. We're going to perform a searching ritual. We're going to pray. We're going to communicate with God. We're going to do something special. And this is private. This is personal. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, loaded it on Isaac, and carried in his own hands the fire and the knife. Then the two of them set out together. There's something very nice about that word together. There's unity, there's love, there's coherence, there's teamwork. They're going to fulfill the plans of God together. Sometimes the plans of God involve us working with other people, doing things with them together. Isaac spoke to his father Abraham. Father, he said, yes, my son. Abraham was attentive to the voice of God, but he was also attentive to the voice of others. Available, open, transparent, clear. Yes, my son. He didn't say to his son, you know, don't bother me now. You know, I have a lot of things in my head and my heart. You, know? or you keep quiet. You know? Or ask me later. Or... He doesn't avoid the question. Yes, my son. He replied, look, here are the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Well, that question must have pierced the heart of Abraham. About to kill his only son, his beloved, whom he loved. And he's left with the question, well, do I tell him the whole truth? Or do I joke with him and say, well, you'll find out pretty quickly where the lamb and the burnt offering is. No? Oh boy, are you about to find out the, the reason for your existence? I've got news for you. <laughs> he could have said a whole pile of things. But Abraham replied, my son, God himself would provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Deus providebit nos. 
God will provide. Beautiful words that have come down to us from scripture, words of Abraham, words of trust, of correspondence, of faith. As we look to the future and possibly see all the great things God wants us to do in our life, and maybe we lack the means, the know-how, this, that, the other, so many things we lack, but God will provide. This afternoon I hope to go to visit again that 95-year-old priest who was the first priest in Pokot in 1952, who said that when he arrived there, there was no education, no medication, and no revelation. And later on, he, he wrote textbooks in Pokot. He learned the language. He wrote the New Testament, wrote a dictionary. And now at 95, he's the happiest man on the planet. He said, God has used me in all sorts of ways. He built a hospital <coughs> in Ortonman. Many famous things. Very simple person at 23 years of age. But now can look back in his life and see the incredible things that God has achieved. Deus providibitnos. God will provide. As we set out on our missionary journey as lay people in the middle of the world to fulfill our mission, to climb mountains with nothing, not knowing this or that, well, we put our trust in God and things will work out in a greater, better way than we could ever have imagined. We teach parents to pray more for their children, to lead virtuous lives, and God will do the rest. Make them great instruments of his to change the world. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, and the two of them went on together. There's serenity, there's peace, there's no anxiety. No worry about the future. We're fulfilling the plans of God and everything will work out. Omni and bono. When they arrived at the place which God had indicated to him, Abraham built an altar there. And so first, before the sacrifice, there is prayer. We turn to God in prayer and in faith. For every little thing, we're about to do and for all the stages of those things. He built an altar there and arranged the wood. Then he bound his son and put him on the altar on top of the wood. So now Isaac gets a bit of an idea of what's going to happen. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. So he goes all the way. He's used all the means. He's prepared everything. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. So at the 11th hour, God calls to him. He waits until this last moment when he has his hand outstretched and the knife ready to plunge into the heart of his son. Abraham goes to that extent. And in this moment, God calls. And Abraham could have said, what is it now? Yeah. <clears throat> he could have replied in a human way. But with the peace of faith, he says, here I am. There may be times when we're working hard, the 11th hour, preparing something that's all, almost ready, and suddenly there's a change of plan. The thing we were preparing for is not going to happen. And we put all this time and work into this thing, and 
all our thought or the whole day or the whole week or the whole month. Open us to the plans of God. Here I am. Doesn't matter what moment it is. Doesn't matter how much work I've done. Here I am. Or I've just spent three hours cleaning this floor and some cat now walks in the window and dirties my floor. Or all the other things that God permits in our life. When maybe all the angels in heaven have their hands on their hips and they're bursting their sides laughing. All those silly moments that we find ourselves in when we could have the human reaction to explode. And we realize the whole of heaven is looking on to this hilarious moment to enjoy this practical joke that God has placed on us. Here I am. Do not raise your hand against the boy, the angel said. Do not harm him. For now I know you fear God. This is like the key phrase of the whole narrative. Now I know you fear God. This was the test to which Abraham was placed and he's passed the test. Now I know. God was looking for that proof of his faith. And so God doesn't just want faith expressed in words he wants faith expressed in deeds we have to show our faith in concrete ways in our apostolate in daring in selection in bringing up topics with people and speaking to them about god and speaking to them about confession about lent about holy week about improving their life about formation about being a better person facing the challenges before them that god has placed before us to launch out into the deep. To give something to the church, to build it up, so that we can change this world, change the spiritual emptiness that there is in it. Now I know that you fear God. And so with our life of faith, it's interesting how St. Jose Maria didn't just talk about acts of faith, he talks about a life of faith. God calls us to lead a life of faith. And with that life of faith, faith put into practice in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of moments, and God wants to work miracles. Like St. Ignatius in 1521, God asked of him a life of faith, and the results are immense. Sea without a, sand without a sea, on the seashore, the, the grains of sand, multiplying your descendants in all sorts of ways. The, the, the mind is, <clears throat> can't even imagine what God wants to do with the seeds of faith that he wants to see in our life. Now I know that you fear God. You have not refused me your own beloved son. You didn't just give me a piece of your heart. You gave me your whole heart. Not just your country, the place where you loved, where you lived, but your your own beloved son so close to your heart and so God asks us for the things that are very close to our heart if ever you were to say in your life well I couldn't give that to God that's something I couldn't do or I couldn't give him that thing if ever he ever asked me for that thing well I, I couldn't manage to give it you can be sure that will be the very thing God will ask of you because he wants everything he's not satisfied with little pieces Wants the whole of our heart, the whole of our life, lock, stock, and barrel. The sacrifice is to be a holocaust. 
are called to follow Christ to Calvary, to be there with him on the cross. Because the great fruits depend on that. Then looking up, Abraham saw a ram caught by its horns in a bush. Abraham took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Interesting, Abraham didn't just say, okay, thank you very much, goodbye, we go home. No, he also made a sacrifice. Looking up, he saw a ram initiative. He thought out of the box, well, now that I'm here, let me offer something in thanksgiving to God for this great gift that he's given to me, the gift of faith, but also the gift of my son. What joy there must have been in Abraham's heart, what relief. But he doesn't just walk away from the situation. He makes a sacrifice in prayer to God and recognition. He took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. God must have been very happy with that sacrifice. Abraham wasn't angry with all that God had put him through. He was grateful. Saw how the plans of God they yield their abundant fruit. And Abraham called this place Yahweh provides, and hence the saying today on the mountain Yahweh provides. But it's not over yet. The angel of Yahweh called Abraham a second time from heaven. Calls him again. Speaks to him in all sorts of beautiful ways. says, I swear by my own self, Yahweh declares, that because you've done this, because you have not refused me, your own beloved son, God begins to talk in a very solemn manner. There aren't any other places in scripture where God speaks like this, with such seriousness, profound joy. I swear by my own self. Wow. Pretty strong stuff. Yahweh declares, because you've done this. Then he sort of emphasizes the point by repeating it. Because you have not refused me, your own beloved son. There is no, nobody that appreciates the sacrifice as much as God does. It makes him so happy, so fulfilled, so joyful, so peaceful. That somebody has loved God and respected him so much as to fulfill his commands in such a, a generous way. God loves the heart of Abraham. No wonder he's called our father in faith. And because of this, God will refuse him nothing. Likewise, when we are generous with God, when we put our faith into practice in concrete ways, in deeds, not just in words, <clears throat> there is nothing that God will refuse us. I will shower blessings on you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and the grains of sand on the seashore. Next time you're on a seashore, we'll just have another look at those grains of sand. The graphic examples that God uses express what he wants to say. Your descendants will gain possession of the gates of their enemies. Power, dominion, 
There is nothing that God will not refuse him. And so likewise, as we try to lead lives of faith, God wants to bring fruits that will last for the whole of eternity. Things that when we go to enjoy the wedding feast, the eternal wedding feast, we can look back with great joy and pride at all that God has achieved in us and through us, through our life of fidelity, of correspondence, of faith put into practice, so that hopefully he can use our lives as an example to all those who come after us with a message that is worth the effort so that five centuries from now people can also celebrate our correspondence to grace. All nations on earth will bless themselves by your descendants because you have obeyed my command. God puts great importance on obedience. Obedience in big things and obedience in little things. Obedience because we see <clears throat> the hand and the will of God behind those things that are said to us by the people that God has placed around us to guide us. Abraham went back to his servants and together they set out for Beersheba and Abraham settled in Beersheba. St. Maria liked to say that men of faith are needed today. People of faith are needed. We need a greater faith in, in God, in the church, in the Holy Father, in the sacraments, in all the things that God has given to us. <coughs> faith in the truths of our faith that come to us in the Catechism. We need to see concrete moments and ways where we can put this faith into practice in our work in our family, in our daily tasks, in our prayer, in our plan of life, in our weekly sacramental confessions over time, how God wants to change our soul, in our fervent holy communions, faith in our apostles, in our launching out into the deep, and taking on great projects that perhaps we think are too great for our capabilities, but yet God will provide He'll show us the way. Lead on, kindly light, Newman used to say. There's a kindly light there in our lives that leads us along the pathway in the, in the darkness, perhaps. We can have great faith in the mass of every day. Faith to get over the fear of the cross. Faith in God's infinite goodness. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Faith in the face of our personal weaknesses. If God is with us, who can be against us? Faith in our charity. And God will give us the grace to be able to love a little more, a little better. To put this virtue into practice in concrete ways. Because God is love. John Paul II, when he talked of Our Lady and our faith, he called her a woman of faith. But he also liked to say she was a woman of faith that is put into practice. Certain nuance there. These days as we accompany Our Lady moving forward through Lent towards Holy Week, Our Lady must have seen all that was coming. Mindful of the words of Simeon, your own soul a sword will pierce. And yet she goes forward with faith and constancy towards the cross. Mary, may you help us to have that same faith.
so that we too can work all the miracles in our life that God wants us to work. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me during this meditation. I ask your help to put them into practice. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede. firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. A number of years ago in Asia, a lady came to me. She was working in a bank. She was involved in trading, derivatives, investments, that type of thing. And a new deal came up in which she could be very personally involved and make a lot of money. It was very lucrative, it was very attractive. She'd been fairly recently baptized but there was something about this deal that didn't seem quite right, and she wanted a moral opinion. And so she came to ask. And when she described what was involved, I had to say to her, well, look, this thing perhaps is not totally wrong, but it's not totally right either. And if you want to give an example of a good Catholic in the middle of the world, Perhaps it's better that you don't get involved in this particular deal, knowing that it was very lucrative. And without batting an eyelid, she said, okay, anyway, we're not just here to do business. We're here to get to heaven. I was rather impressed with that answer and that comment. She saw that idea with the Chinese clarity. We're here to get to heaven. What a good idea to have that would guide all our actions in this world. That's what we're here for. That's what we hope in. This meditation is about the virtue of hope. We can often talk a lot about faith and about charity. But sometimes we can forget about hope. And hope is a very powerful virtue. It's a virtue that keeps us looking up, particularly in situations that otherwise might lead to sadness, sickness, pain, death, contradictions, problems. Our Lord wants us to hope, and to hope in him, and every time that we receive the sacraments, 
we receive an influx of the supernatural virtue of hope. It comes with sanctifying grace. We receive an outpouring of the virtues of faith, of hope, and of charity. And so one of the ways that we grow in this virtue is through receiving the sacraments. And every time that we receive the sacraments, well, we can ask for an increase in this virtue so that our souls may be full of hope and so that we can transmit that hope to many other people. St. Paul says to the Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in your faith so that in the power of the Holy Spirit you may be rich in hope well, often we desire to be rich in all sorts of things, particularly material things. But it's interesting how God beckons us to be rich in the spiritual things, rich in the things that only God can give us, that this world cannot give us. What a great thing to be rich in hope and to be able to spread that hope around so many other people. Pope Francis recently has talked about how there's a great emptiness in the world, a great spiritual emptiness. We have come to fill that emptiness with the treasures of hope that God has placed in our soul. I have told you this, said our Lord, so that my own joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Hope leads us to joy because we look over, above and beyond our immediate circumstances. It leads us to see that there is some other great force and power taking place here at work in the world, a divine power. It leads us to dream of all the wonderful things that God wants us to do in this world. And when we come face to face with evil, with sin, all the corruption, all the abortions, all the contraception, all the murders, all the drunkenness, all the betrayal. We know that with one mass, we can wipe out all of that. We hope in the mass. We hope in the Blessed Eucharist. We hope in the church. That just as it has lasted for 20 centuries, it will last for all eternity, as long as God wants. And so we have great reasons to hope. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, says St. Peter, who in his great mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's given us a new birth into a living hope. Every time we get out of bed in the morning and we say the morning offering, we make an act of hope. We hope in the graces of this day. Sufficient for each day are the graces thereof. We know God will give us enough graces to sanctify this day, to be happy this day, to see his hand behind everything that happens. To live out our life day by day, hour by hour. We hope in him. He will get us through it. 
Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. On many occasions in our Lord's life, he encourages that hope. Prayer is the language of hope. Leads us to hope in all moments, in all situations. The good thief on Calvary, he looked across and he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Strange words, your kingdom. This was a criminal being crucified like them. But he looked across and he, he saw a different reality. Crown of thorns had become a royal crown. The nails in his hands had become the scepter with which he reigns. The cross of wood had become his throne. And so he saw a king. And so the final words of the good thief were words of hope. Remember me. Beautiful words for us to say from time to time. And the answer of Christ was immediate. This day you will be with me in paradise. Christ didn't say, well, let me do an audit on your life. Let me see how much money it was that you stole. Let me uh, get a magnifying glass and really see, are you worthy of my kingdom? Rather, he said, this day you will be with me in paradise. He was rewarded for his hope. The psalm says, in God alone there is rest for my soul. From him comes my safety. He alone is my rock, my safety, my stronghold, so that I stand unshaken. It may be that in certain times in our life, God sweeps the feet from under us, leaves us hanging there. Because he wants us to look up, wants us to learn what real hope is, wants to teach us not to hope in the things of this world, our health, our finances, our security, all those things that can be washed away in a moment. The whole of the pandemic that we're going through, well, is like a, a global call to hope more in God and hope and trust less in the things of this world. If I should ever walk in the valley of darkness, no evil would I fear, because you are there with me, with your crook and your staff to help me. St. Paul talks about patient in tribulation, joyful in hope. And so that hope brings us joy and peace because we look up to greater things. In the letter to the Hebrews, it talks about the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. On many occasions, in the Bible, the words, do not be afraid, are used. It occurs something like 365 times. And the frequency with which words are used in the Bible is a, 
indication of their importance. It means that each and every day we're encouraged to be strong in faith and live with a Christian hope because God always fulfills his promises. God is not a human that he should lie, says the book of Numbers, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see what Yahweh will do to rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. And in Isaiah, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do not be alarmed, for I am your God. I give you strength. Truly, I help you. Truly, I hold you firm with my saving right hand. And in the Gospel of St. John, do not let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. Our Lord played a, a practical joke on the apostles. He came to them walking on the water. They were scared out of their wits. They shouted, it's a ghost. It wasn't a ghost, it was just Jesus. God may come to us in certain ways and we might have the same reaction. But our Lord immediately calmed them down. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And so all the time our Lord is inviting us to trust in him. I was coming home from St. Mass one morning and I turned on the BBC News and it talked about a certain person who had set up a cosmetic industry who had passed away. And I had seen that name written in big letters in duty-free areas of airports and many other places. It was an unusual name. I often was, wondered what was behind it. And here was this person explaining. The, I think the individual had come from Hungary, went to New York, set up this cosmetic empire. And there was one person in the studio who was talking about the life of this person and what they had done. And there was a bit, of a bit of a comedian there also who was sort of throwing cold water on things and said that, well, Vaseline ointment or rub ointment are as effective in removing your pimples, your wrinkles or your gray hair as any of the foundational creams of this particular cosmetic uh, business. And so on and so forth. And then at the end of the conversation, this comedian said, well, really, what this person did was to sell hope to people. It's a rather interesting description of the cosmetic industry. As though everybody needs hope. And if you get hope and you put it into a tube or into a nice bottle and with a nice color, a nice fragrance, and put a good price on it, well, everybody will buy it. Well, later that day, I happened to see a picture in a magazine of a person, a lady who was very prominent in the 60s. But now she was almost 90. And the poor lady had more wrinkles than anybody I'd ever seen. And I thought, well, she must have had access to all of those foundational creams, but it doesn't seem to have done her too much good. 
moral of the story is not to put our hope in human things, in the things of this world, but our hope in God. Because you, God, are my strength. Yet tu es Deus fortitudo mea, says in scripture. And this is the opposite of discouragement or despair and pessimism. I heard a priest in Asia say once that young people today can be faced with a great pessimism, particularly in the area of sexual morality. Don't fight against your passions. You can't win. Give in. And so they need a lot of hope, a lot of encouragement. This virtue leads us to love where we've been placed. In this particular job, in this particular marriage, in this particular family, with this particular boss, with this particular health or financial situation. This is where God wants me. This is where he wants me to be holy. And this is where he'll give me all the graces that I need. And therefore we can be very contented because we place all our hope in him. St. Maria liked to say that we should passionately love the world. It's a rather interesting phrase. You don't hear about people passionately loving the world too much. And at the time when he said these words, it seemed a heresy. You weren't supposed to love the world. You're supposed to escape from the world to be holy. And notice how he pushed, put the adverb first in the sentence, passionately loving the world. He could have said loving the world passionately, but for emphasis, the adverb comes first. If you met somebody and they told you that I love chapati passionately, well, you might be a bit surprised if they said passionately loving chapati. Or they would say that I love Manchester United passionately. Or passionately loving man you. No? Well, that's what he said about the world. We passionately love where we've been placed because that's where God wants us to be. With the difficulties and challenges of the world, the difficulties of our environment, of our profession, of our children, of our friends. Hope leads us to love where we are. This is where I'm meant to be. This is what I've been created for. This is part of my vocation. And therefore hope gives a great youthfulness to the soul. You may meet older people who are very youthful, full of vitality, full of dreams, full of enthusiasm. And if you've met certain teenagers, well, you might find them full of what somebody called the old age of the spirit. Oh, it's too difficult. Oh, it takes too much effort. Oh, I don't have time. I couldn't manage that. Hope gives us a virtue whereby we look over above and beyond the immediate obstacles. And the reason for our hope is Christ. He has risen as he promised. The resurrection is the greatest feast in the liturgical year. Because with this, Christ has conquered death. He's conquered sin. He's conquered the devil. He's conquered evil. The feast of hope. It leads us to look to the future. We are an Easter people. 
And so we hope in Christ we come back to him in the Blessed Sacrament or on the cross so they can fill our hearts of youth with hope, even when things may seem bleak. It seems there's a custom when a new pope is elected that he has his portrait painted. <clears throat> and there was one pope where they assigned a, well, a modernistic painter to paint this portrait. And he was full of all sorts of brush strokes, very avant-garde, very modernistic. And when it was finished, the custom is that the Pope signs it. But when the Pope came to see his painting, he could hardly recognize himself. It was so modernistic. And so instead of writing his, <clears throat> his signature there, he wrote a phrase of scripture, which was, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And so Christ comes to us in all sorts of moments. Therefore, we can hope in the moments of the cross with our priestly soul to offer this cross to God in the knowledge that he wants us to carry it or offer it to him to bring some great fruit. We can have a lot of fortitude in hope. Maybe that God wants us to practice this virtue for a long time or to be heroic in our practice of this virtue. We're told in Psalm 2, you are my child. This day I have begotten you. A regular contemplation of that phrase can lead us to a greater hope and to the reasons why God leads us into a situation of hope. Children don't just believe in their parents. They hope in them for everything that they need for everything that they want. Our hope in God is very well placed because God is omnipotent and he's also all goodness. <clears throat> the first temptation that the devil gave to Christ after his fasting for 40 days and 40 nights was a, a temptation not to hope, not to see the hand of God behind the contradiction of being hungry. How could God be your true father when he allows you to be so hungry? So turn these stones into loaves of bread. But Christ rejected the devil very quickly. Hope gives to our interior struggle a, a certain tenacity and firmness that faith alone cannot give. And so we can hope in God in our struggle to be better to conquer our weakness. It's a virtue that leads us to begin and to begin again. Like a small child who's running to the embrace of its father, but it's just learned to stand on its two feet and maybe halfway across the, the floor it falls down, but then it gets up again. Maybe it falls again, but it gets up again. On the way to Calvary, on the way of the cross, we see that Christ fell the first time, and he fell the second time, and he fell the third time. If those stations are ever renamed, they could be called, Christ got up the first time, and he got up the second time, and he got up the third time. We can have great hope in our apostolate, particularly when it might seem 
that there is no fruit. When we try to sow seeds around us, seeds of truth, of beauty, of love, because God is love, and there's no reaction, but we know that those seeds will bring their fruit in due time. My chosen ones do not work in vain. And so we've no need for discouragement in our apostolate. And to launch into the deep, to dream great dreams, to be daring. We can hope in our efforts in our family life. The efforts we make to educate our children. To repeat things maybe 500 times. And to get across certain messages or certain values. That may be difficult to communicate or to penetrate with those ideas. And children don't seem to catch them. But the day will come when those seeds will go deep. We can hope in our work with its problems, its stresses, its tensions, its failures. We can hope in our times of rest. <clears throat> but the tiredness or the problems that we may feel at the end of a busy day or the end of a, a long work period that God will give us rest. Our Sunday or our weekends will be a period of rest in order to work better or work more. Or with this period of rest, well, a lot of my troubles will, will pass away. The solutions will come. And so hope helps us to maintain our serenity and our optimism before any difficulties that may lie in our path. And the achievement of the goals, the ideals that Christ has placed in our heart. And it makes us persevere with enthusiasm without becoming discouraged. Because we see that all things, even the difficulties, are for the good for those who love God. I knew a girl once in another country who did so well in her end of secondary school exam that she got into Oxford. And not only that, but she got into law in Oxford. That was in December. In February, she developed leukemia. In January, she, in, in July, she, she died at 19 years of age. Towards the end of that process, she was in the ICU with heart monitors, respirators, drips, tubes everywhere. And the doctors told her parents that time had come to turn off the respirator which is not a moral problem because if it's the only thing keeping the person alive it's no difficulty to turn it off but the parents found it difficult to come to that decision and so there was a family conference called and i was brought in to sort of mediate and there was a moment when i said to these parents well look what else does this world have for your daughter ICUs and heart monitors, respirators, drips, tubes. This world has nothing else to offer your daughter. But what is waiting for her? Eternal happiness. I was very grateful to the Holy Spirit for that idea at that particular moment in time. I hadn't quite thought about it like that before. It made me realize 
the great hope and joy that come from the contemplation of the eternal truths of our faith. St. Jose Maria says, foster in your heart the glorious hope of heaven. It's very good that we think about heaven, we dream about heaven, where every tear will be wiped away, and that we want it for people. When our loved ones pass on, we may be sad for a while because we're human, but then we realize the great things that have been achieved, the joy that they have in the presence of eternal beatitude, and what eternal happiness means. It's a wonderful thing. And so we can ask that this virtue would help us to give ourselves daringly in the marvelous task of the transformation of the world, which the Holy Father and our Lord are placing before us. May it lead us to discover that something divine hidden in the ordinary work of every day. And lead us to realize that if ever we have a low period, well, that's not a time to make life-changing decisions. Those times will pass. We see things in a new light. It's a virtue that's fundamental for people who are trying to sanctify themselves in the middle of the world. Let's them see that they're there to transform this world into a situation pleasing to God. St. Catherine of Siena said, for those who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, then all the way home to heaven is heaven now. And so, Lord, help us to trust in you, in spite of our weaknesses and our sins. In the forge, we're told that Lazarus rose because he heard the voice of God and immediately wanted to get out of the situation he was in. If he hadn't wanted to move, he would just have died again. A sincere resolution to have faith in God always, to hope in God always, to love God always. He never abandons us, even if we're rotting away as Lazarus was. When Lazarus heard the voice of our Lord, he could have just turned over and said, no, I don't want to respond. I, I'm happy where I am. Leave me in peace. I don't want to change. But he heard the voice of Christ and he responded. And so Our Lady of Hope will wipe away our tears in this valley of tears. Particularly when we invoke her as our hope frequently. So Mary, Queen of Hope, pray for us. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me during this meditation. I ask your help to put them into practice. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins. 
and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. A number of years ago in Dublin on a radio talk show, the speechwriter of the Vice President of the United States was interviewed and he was talking about how interesting it was to be the speechwriter of the Vice President of the United States. He said there was only one of him and so he had direct access to the Vice President whenever he wanted. But he said in the case of the President there were about 20 speechwriters and all their work had to be very carefully vetted before it was released. And he told a story of a speechwriter in the 60s during the time of the Johnson administration. He wasn't very happy that a lot of his work was not seeing the light of day. He also felt that he deserved a raise and he asked Johnson for that raise which was refused. And so he decided that he would quit. But before he quit he would write one last speech. Usually all the speeches were gone through very carefully. But if the president was on tour, the first time that he might be reading the speech could be when he was actually on the platform. And so this fellow bided his time <coughs> and waited for his opportunity, which came when the president was addressing 6,000 rich Democrats in South Carolina. And this fellow slipped in his speech. And the first few pages went very well. But about halfway down on the fourth page, it read, do you want me to tell you how I'm going to solve the problem of unemployment in this country in the next three months? Well, I'm going to tell you right now how I'm going to solve the problem of unemployment in this country in the next three months. And he was a bit surprised that he would make such a statement. And the next paragraph it said, and do you want me to tell you how I'm going to curb inflation in this country in the next six months? Well, I'm going to tell you right now how I'm going to curb inflation in this country in the next six months. And again, he was a bit surprised. These were very rash statements to be making. And he was beginning to wonder what was coming on the next page. And the last paragraph said, and do you want me to tell you how I'm going to end the war in Vietnam? Well, I'm going to tell you right now how I'm going to end the war in Vietnam. So now he was breaking out into a cold sweat, wondering what on earth is coming on the next page. And he turned over the page and there were just a few words there which said, you're on your own now, baby. And so he was left high and dry. Our Lord has given us the greatest commandment, the commandment of charity which says, do unto others as you would like done unto yourself. And notice it's a positive command. Our Lord doesn't say, don't do to other people what you would not like them to do to you. It's doing things to people. Charity is dynamic, it's progressive, it's proactive. We express our charity with words, with deeds with little acts of service, with thoughtfulness. A new commandment I give you, he said, that you love one another 
even as I have loved you. This is a very tall order. How did our Lord love us? Well, he loved us by dying on the cross. Greater love than this no man has, than that he lay down his life for its friends. Modern culture tends to tell us that love is feeling. In the movie, when you hear the violins play, that's when they're in love. And maybe tomorrow morning, there's no more love. And feeling is like a buzzword in modern culture. Taste the feeling, feel the feeling, hear the feeling. Everything is feeling. But Christ on the cross did not say you can't beat this feeling. Live on the right side of life. Christ must, Christ must have been feeling awful on the cross with three big nails going through him. But it's there that he said greater love than this no man has. And so Christ teaches us that love is sacrifice. If you want to know who you love in this world, well, ask yourself, for whom am I willing to sacrifice myself? And if you ask the question, well, who loves me most in this world? You could ask, well, who has sacrificed themselves most for me in this world? For most of us, that's our mothers. I often tell secondary school kids to go home and ask their mother, what was my pregnancy like, those nine months? And what was my labor like? Your mother will tell you to sit down for an hour, I'll tell you about it, contraction by contraction. And so we learn an awful lot from our mothers. John Paul II used to say that we learned from mothers how to love. We learn humanity from mothers. And that's why he says every man coming into the world is entrusted to the care of a woman. The father has a role to play, of course, but the mother's role is crucial. That you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our Lord could have chosen many other virtues that we should be known by, our honesty, our integrity, our chastity, our industriousness, our order. But he chose charity. And St. Paul tells us that charity is the most perfect of the virtues. Holiness is charity. We'll be judged on our charity. The one thing that God will ask of us. Did you love other people? He won't be so impressed by all the great things we may have achieved. Or the letters after our name. Or the gold medals we've won in all sorts of places. But he will ask us, how have you loved? And how have you learned to love and to begin again in love? I heard of a lawyer in Sydney one time who spoke about how a couple came to see him. He was 86 and she was 83. And he said, what can I do for you? And 
they said, we want to get a divorce. And why do you want to get a divorce? Because we don't love each other anymore. And how long have you been married? 40 years. And so this lawyer used to attend a yearly retreat where he heard a lot of things about charity. And he tried to remember as best he could the points on charity in that last talk or meditation that he attended. And he gave them an impromptu talk about what charity is. Charity is patient. Charity is kind. It's forgiving. It's overlooking the little irritating details of each day. It's letting the water pass onto the bridge. It's not making a mountain out of a molehill. It's loving other people with their defects. It's enduring all things. And he asked them to go away and think about these ideas for some time. And then come back another day and we would talk a bit more. They weren't very convinced, but they said they'd give it a go. And so they went away. And three years later, the wife came back to tell the lawyer, look, I just came back to thank you. Because my husband just passed away, but we've just had three of the most wonderful years of our whole life. And so the moral of the story is that we're always beginning again in love. God is love. Love is a mystery. We never fully understand the mystery. We never fully grasp it. But all through our life, we can get a different optical angle on that mystery. Have to savour it a little more. And come to appreciate the greatness of charity and its importance. So that in our life, we try to practice little details of charity in very ordinary ways with the people that we live. Do they find you thoughtful? Do you have a spirit of service? Are you proactive? Do you remember birthdays or other important days, anniversaries? Do you go out of your way for other people? Are you easy to live with? All these things are important. But I say to you that here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This is the great Christian revolution. In the Old Testament, it was the law of the jungle. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Christ comes to preach a doctrine of love, a love that has to permeate everything, our words, our actions, our work, our sport, in every situation. Christ is love, the Catholic Church is love, Christianity is love. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And so our Lord invites us to go out of ourselves, forget about ourselves, be the first to make amends, to shake hands, to smoothen out situations, to create an atmosphere of charity around us. Everybody needs affection. 
There is no human being on this planet that does not have a heart and that does not need affection. Children need kind words and encouragement. Wives need them, husbands need them. We could ask ourselves in the last two weeks, well, have I concretely gone out of my way to say a few kind words to somebody? It could be somebody we bump into in the street or somebody we pass by in a regular way, but we've never really spoken to them. Everybody has a right to our kind words. St. Paul says, keep encouraging one another. Everybody needs encouragement. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. We don't give because of what we're going to get. It's not I give to you as long as you'll give back to me. That's selfishness. Charity is opposed to selfishness. And if truth were told, that's our biggest effect. Pride is selfishness, egoism, thinking of myself, concerned about myself. Christ invites us to forget about ourselves, be available to others. All the virtues can always be improving. And so we also can be growing in charity, learning how to love a little more and a little better in the concrete situations where God has placed us. Sometimes we might be aware of, well, how we've been hurt by other people, or badly dealt with, or some injustice that's come our way, or somebody has stood on our, on our toes, or said something, or an unpleasant tone or whatever within the family, outside the family, in the office, on the golf course, in all sorts of places. Well, if ever we feel slighted by other people, we have to try and think of how much we may have offended our God with our sins. And also how much we may have offended other people at times without realising it. A number of years ago in Singapore, there was a, an elderly group in a parish who were very conscious that half the clergy of the diocese were foreign missionary priests. And so this elderly group had the initiative to find out their birthdays and to send them a homemade birthday card. So every year you would get a homemade birthday card from this elders group. And one year when I opened the card, there was a dedication on the inside, which said, on this day, when you remember all the ways in which God has given you blessings, never forget how much you have made other people suffer. It was a rather interesting dedication to get on your birthday. But I cut it out and I keep it. And every time I give a talk on charity, I come across that, that quotation. It's a good thing to remember. All the times we may have hurt other people or made them suffer with our words, with our actions. 
Ask your mother sometime, Mom, was I ever unlovable? She'll say, sit down for an hour, I'll tell you about it. We've all been the most unlovable creatures you could imagine, even though we think of ourselves as the most lovable. Other people have loved us with our defects. Then Jose Maria liked to say that loving other people really is loving them with their defects. Not loving them as long as they conform to what I want them to be or what I demand them to be. We're called to love them as they are. And sometimes other people's defects become very visible. I was having dinner one evening with a 75-year-old French missionary priest in the highlands of Malaysia. He'd been a number of years, I think, in China. He was retired back there. And there were just the two of us. And halfway through the meal, he took out his false teeth and he put them on the table. My father was a dentist. I was used to seeing false teeth, but this was the first time I ever had a real live set of false teeth looking at me across the table. He said, you know, this chili that we eat here, it makes my teeth very loose, so they get uncomfortable. So he explained why he took out his teeth in that way. And then he told me a story of how the previous week he had gone back to a, a town where he had been a parish priest for a number of years. And he said, I don't like going to fancy restaurants anymore, but there was this man there who was very kind to me and he invited me to lunch and I couldn't say no, so we went to this fancy restaurant. And again, I had trouble with my teeth. So I took out my teeth, he said, but this time I was a bit more discreet. I wrapped them in the napkin. And then I was chatting away to the people who were there and I looked back, the napkin was gone. The waitress had taken the napkin. I had to rush to the kitchen and look in the garbage can, but I, I got back my gentures okay. So he had quite a lot of adventures with uh, in that particular uh, article. <clears throat> and so sometimes other people's defects become very visible. And our Lord invites us to love people with their defects. We will see them sooner or later. When couples came to see him, he would ask the, the husband, do you love your wife? Well, he would say yes, and do you love her with the defects? And there would be silence. And he'd say, well, if you don't love her with her defects, then you don't really love her. And then he'd hear, well, okay, I love her with her defects. And then the same thing to the wife. Do you love your husband? Yes. Do you love him with his defects? Silence. If you don't love him with his defects, then you don't really love him. To be able to love people with their defects, we need the grace of God to bring us up onto a supernatural level. To see the blood of Christ flowing through the veins of other people. Or to see that this person is worth all the blood of Christ. Christ died on the cross for this particular person. Now this person that I might find so difficult to love is possibly very precious in the eyes of God. And so that supernatural grace can help us to look at other people in a different way. And then he told me once how she was at a mass and there was a French missionary priest saying the mass and he gave a homily. And he spoke about when he was a 10 year old kid, there was a monastery of strict observance on the outskirts of his village. 
and he used to go there to help the monks in their work. And so they had this vow of silence, and so they didn't talk, but if you talked out of charity, they would talk to you. And he said, I was quite talkative, so they used to talk to me quite a bit as I helped them in their work. But he said, over in the edge of the garden, there was an elderly priest, an elderly monk, who was always very silent. And there was a great awe of holiness about this holy man. And he said, I was mesmerized by him. And one day I went over to him and said, when I grow old, I want to be like you. And the monk said, no, don't be like me, because I have that hatred in my heart. And this elderly missionary priest said, I was shocked to hear that this holy, saintly, elderly monk could have had hatred in his heart. And he explained that there's a monk that sits beside me in the refectory who makes a lot of noise when he's eating. And for the past 30 years, he's been driving me up the wall. And the lady who told me the story said, when the priest said that, I couldn't look at my husband. Because for the last 30 years, I've been telling him, mind your manners. All of us kind of hatred in our heart. Our Lord has warned us that out of the human heart come all sorts of ugly things. Hatred, violence, envy, jealousy. So we shouldn't be surprised or scandalized by the things that can come out of our heart. It's not that we're getting worse. Those things have always been there, but just maybe our Lord lets us see them a little clearer. And so divine love is sacrificial love. Love does not mean to have and to own, but to, to, to be possessed by others. At the end of your earthly life, the centuries of Israel, you will be judged on the greatness of your love. St. Ignatius said, no wood is better able to increase the fire of divine love than the wood of the cross. If we are to love others with their defects, that often means we have to be understanding. Very often the greatest charity is understanding. Understanding where people are coming from. Often we don't know where people are coming from. We don't know what's just happened in their life today or in the last hour. We can be full of judgments and criticisms. When our Lord invites us to be patient, to be understanding. There was a story of a lady professor on the New York subway it was a Sunday morning, she was reading her New York Times, and she was thinking to herself what a pleasant place the New York subway is on a Sunday morning, no rush hour traffic. And at the next station, a lady got on with five children. The lady sat in front of her, closed her eyes, and the children began to run around the carriage. And they were shouting and roaring and screaming. They banged against this lady's newspaper and banged against her in other ways, and she put up with it for as long as she could. But then she decided she'd had enough. She put down her newspaper. She tapped the woman on the knee who opened her eyes. And in a very irritated tone, she said to the lady, don't you think you should do something about your children? And the lady opened her eyes and said, well, perhaps I should, but 
I've just come from the hospital where their father died. And I'm a bit confused. The lady professor was thrown back on her heels. She had no idea where this woman was coming from. What just happened in her life? How her life had just been changed irrevocably in that of her children. And there she was crucifying this woman and her children in her mind with no mercy. And so we never know where people are coming from. We always have to try and find some excuse. Charity is patient. By your patience, you will inherit your souls. Eventually, the truth will come out. We'll understand a little more from that situation. Why people have reacted in this way or said those words or used that tone or done this particular action. And in those situations, well, we have an opportunity to love a little more, to love a little better, to learn to know the words, the actions, the gestures, that only those who love know are really important. Sometimes our greatest charity can be to to be silent, not to burst forth with words or with rage, but to be silent. Maybe there needs to be a lot more silence in our life and not just an exterior silence, but an interior silence. Silence of our imagination, of our judgments, of our criticisms, of our interior words and thoughts. There's a very powerful phrase that we're told and the story of the Passion, when our Lord was confronted by Pilate, we're told Jesus kept silent. One great example that Christ gives us on the way to the cross, an example of silence. Euripides says that silence is often charity's first reply, or wisdom's first reply. Let things pass. Keep your cool. Hold your tongue. This may not be the moment to talk. If there's a storm growing in our heart, we'll say, Jesus, give me peace. Only with peace and supernatural vision can we listen to what others are saying to us. Some people can't explain things clearly. Others can't understand clearly. We have to try and Listen to, not just to their words, but to their feelings. Train yourself to hear what the people are trying to say. A person who doesn't understand another person's silences will, will not understand their words either. And so in this way, we can be sensitive to the needs of all. We never know how heavy a burden may be that another person may be carrying. And one of the goals of our life is to try and be to make sure that no one ever feels alone. And we reach out to people, we're there for them. With a phone call, with a word, with a gesture, with an encouragement. 
And in that way we create, we create our unity around us. Hopefully people are happy to be in our company because they know they will be well treated. There will be justice there. Listen with respect and interest, said St. Joseph Maria in the furrow. Give due credit to people. But carefully ponder your judgment in the presence of God. Silently bring to your prayer things that may have jolted you or bothered you or concerned you. How very insistent, he says in the forge, the apostle St. John was in preaching the new commandment that we should love one another. I would fall on my knees without putting on any act, but this is what my heart dictates. And ask you for the love of God to love one another, to help one another, to lend one another a hand, to know how to forgive one another. And so reject all pride, be compassionate, show charity, help each other with prayer and sincere friendship. The evangelist that speaks most about charity is St. John. Nearly all the things we hear about charity in the gospel is in St. John. And Blessed Alfred del Portillo talks about how it was to the care of St. John that Our Lady was entrusted. What a beautiful observation. And so from his <clears throat> greater contact with Our Lady, he writes more about love. Well, we could ask Our Lady that from her gentle presence in the background of our life, that our words and actions might have a greater character of charity about them. And also other people from seeing our words and our actions. And hopefully they might discover that sweet and gentle presence of Our Lady in the background of our life. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me during this meditation. I ask your help to put them into practice. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.